Amen. Well, good morning. Wonderful to see you, beloved. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. So wonderful to have Brady and Nicole back with us as well, and a number of others. I know we still have a few out with sickness and out on vacation. Our prayers go out for speedy healing for us, for, from us to you as well. And a quick note of thanks as well to all of our volunteers as well that made the Harrison Hills VBS a wonderful success this week. I believe around 25 children plus our, plus our missions team from Fisherville. Great opportunities to meet new families in the community as well. So we rejoiced last week. In addition, as we welcomed two new families into membership at Harrison Hills, Brian and Amy Mallory and Harvey and Kathy Willis, what a blessing they are to the body. We are overjoyed to have them join to us. You know, the great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was medical doctor to the royal family and minister of Westminster Chapel in London, he was an eminent expositor of scripture. He said, quote, we must re-grasp the idea of church membership as being the membership of the body of Christ and as the biggest honor which can come man's way in this world, close quote. God is faithful and we are grateful for all he's doing in our midst and what he's doing in the lives of our children and for our community. And speaking of what God is doing as well, Women of Grace, the Women's Ministry of Harrison Hills, we are excited for you as well as you kick off your first season of our Women's Ministry, starting June 16th on the Attributes of God. I know Diana had desired to host it at her home, but we have the glorious problem of having too many women. Well, what a great problem to have, so we will be hosting that study here at the church Again, you will be immeasurably blessed as Women of Grace launches with teaching the most foundational truths of who God is, the attributes of God. You know, it's hard to know someone or to truly know them better if in many ways we've never been formally introduced. Now, this will be that in-depth introduction we need. So June 16th, mark it down, be there, and feel free to invite a friend as well. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we began our series titled Jesus on Divorce, a subject that carries such weight and such implications. This comes on the heels of other extremely challenging verses at the end of chapter 9, Jesus speaking on the issues of hell and on the high cost of discipleship. Next week we will wrap up our three-part series as we look at some specifics on marriage, on divorce, and on remarriage, which I know many are anxious to hear. We'll look at what's known as the exception clause that Jesus gives in Matthew 19. This is a lot, and I know that this can feel like a bit of a a one-two punch for us and with such weighty topics in tandem. But beloved, let us take heart that we are preaching and teaching on Jesus' words in the order and the manner in which they have been given to us, in which they have been preserved for us, skipping nothing, changing the order of nothing. And we trust in the Lord to strengthen our spirits to receive such challenges, to take His word as it has been given to us, once for all, delivered to the saints. We know that for anyone that has experienced divorce directly, it was likely one of the hardest times of your life. Indeed, for any that have experienced the effects of divorce, even indirectly, having it in your family, as a child or a sibling, the effects can be long felt. 
We know that these are difficult topics. But ever so necessary as Jesus enters into his last six months before Calvary. Now our scene opens, as you recall, in verse 1 of chapter 10 last week, with Jesus up and leaving Capernaum. And this was a final departure, as we said. Jesus would never again come to his beloved ministry, HQ, of Galilee. Again until after his resurrection. Because he did not arrive back into Capernaum to a lot of fanfare, remember he almost returned incognito. He left in nearly the same way. His ministry there was done. And I don't want us to miss that. Remember, the area of Galilee and Capernaum had largely rejected Jesus. Their chance was over. And it was not with thunder and lightning that the Son of God gave Galilee over to her sinful state. The Son of God simply and quietly left. The light never again to return. It's tragic, really, the way that Jesus departs in verse 1. No long goodbyes, no exclamation of woe and judgment upon the city that had the light so shine among her. Isaiah said of her, nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her way, her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, in Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. And it was in chapter 10, verse 1 last week, that the light departs, leaving south on a sovereign timetable to arrive in Jerusalem in perfect time for the Passover. Because indeed, it would be Christ who would be our Passover lamb. Jesus leaving Galilee and Capernaum in such a way, leaving the people that walked in darkness that have seen such a great light, it is a timely reminder for us all that we are accountable for what we know. We will be accountable for the light that is given to us. Sitting under the gospel and the preached word this morning is not free or without consequence. We are accountable for the message. It's in the record books. You would be much better off having never heard than to know the truth and reject it. There is a cost to hearing the word of God preached, and the bill will come due to your account if Christ has not paid it. Jesus pronounced woe multiple times in Scripture to the cities that heard the message and rejected it saying it would be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in that day than for those who heard the truth and rejected it. Jesus leaving Capernaum and Galilee in verse 1 of our series carries with it divine warning. Take heed of that warning this morning. Every offer of salvation, every call to come to the cross, every pleading to come to Christ is a lustrous, shining pearl presented to you on a bed of velvet. And to walk out of here the same way you walked in is to take that pearl, the beautiful message of the gospel, and to trample it underfoot. Imagine taking what God prizes most, His Son, the death of His Son, the gift of reconciling you to Himself through His Son and casting it into the dirt as worthless. 
everyone listening this morning is presented with this very precious pearl today, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Take it, hold it dear, sell all to acquire it, give all to obtain it, and you shall live. We have God's word on it. Today is the acceptable day of salvation. You say, well, glory, hallelujah, pastor. What does that have to do with divorce? Everything. Everything. Divorce occurs because of a hardness of heart. But Christ gives us new hearts made out of flesh, not calloused or stony. A beautiful union of two people racing each other to the foot of the cross, outdoing one another in gentleness, in service, and in love. A redeemed heart is one that first suspects itself in conflict instead of another. A redeemed heart is one that is more focused on their own misdeed than the 99 that may have been perpetrated against them. The gospel changes marriages. The gospel stops divorce. And that bears saying clearly as we are going to be diving into Genesis, going back in time, it all points to the cross. Genesis, creation, points to the cross. The antidote to divorce. As we begin, let us have that ever before us. So with that, let's dive into our text this morning. Amazing text. Wonderful words of life, are they not? Mark chapter 10 Verses 6 through 9. Mark 10, 6 through 9. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your keeping power in your word. Lord, as we faithfully march through verse by verse, Lord, we ask for strength of heart to receive your word as you've given it to us. Lord, just as your disciples were to walk alongside you and to receive your teaching as you were giving it, Lord, we ask for that same grace this morning. Lord, for those that this touches personally, we ask that you would uh, give them a soft heart. We ask that you would give them a healed heart, a restored heart. Heavenly Father, for those who have felt the effects indirectly, Lord, we ask that this would uh, touch them deeply as well. Uh, Lord, that you are a God who redeems and restores. Holy Spirit, we need you desperately in this text. We pray that you would abide to your word in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, those of you who were with us last week went for a bit of a deep dive into the history of divorce in Scripture. With the Lord speaking in Malachi 2.16, he proclaimed, I hate divorce. Well, that seemed like an awfully good place to start with such a clear statement. And we looked at what was happening in the nation of Israel to prompt such a response. And as we read that the Lord's feeling, as we read that the Lord's feelings and declarations are on divorce, as we read what they were, what was happening that, God, that caused God to say this? Through the prophet Malachi and through his contemporary Nehemiah, we saw that upon Israel's return from Babylonian exile, that the Israelites became incredibly legalistic. 
It was idolatry that got us sent into exile, and we don't want that to happen again, so we're going to put layers upon layers upon layers of rules and laws to make sure that we never get banished again. But what we observed in Nehemiah 13 was that upon returning, they began divorcing their Jewish wives en masse in favor of marrying their pagan Gentile women. Why is this? I thought it was against God's law and that they were determined to keep God's law to stay in his good graces. So why are they doing this? Why break his law and deal treacherously with the wife of your, of your youth, meaning your Jewish wife? Well, a few things to observe. Number one is that sin will proliferate if the shame of that sin is removed. We see plenty of that in our society today and the shame of divorce. As we saw in Nehemiah, it had not just been removed in Israel, but it had been removed by the priests themselves, leading the way in the practice. If your religious leader is not saying, have you no shame, and the culture is not condemning you, guess what you're going to do? Whatever your flesh wants to do. So number one, sin will proliferate if the shame of that sin is removed, which it was. And number two, answering the question, We must follow the pattern. When Israel's return from exile came, they made a list of rules to be followed. Religiously, legalistically. Fast forward now to the Pharisees now. Has anything changed? No. Nothing has changed. Matthew 15, in Matthew 15, Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me. Just because you made a list of rules does not mean that the heart has changed. And eventually culture will change the rules to suit my fallen heart, and there you go, voila, I'm still following the rules, aren't I? but their heart is far from me. The psalmist declares, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. The Lord speaking through the prophet Hosea, I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. As I was writing this, I thought such application in our parenting for those who have children. You know, we always want our kids to follow the rules, follow the rules, and we punish them if they don't follow the rules. But that's the wrong conversation. We want their hearts changed. If they simply follow the rules to avoid punishment, what do we have on our hands? A bunch of little rule-keeping Pharisees with fallen hearts who are simply learning to follow the rules to get what they want. They're manipulative legalists. That sounds like a joy, doesn't it? That's exactly what we have here. That's the Pharisees. Except in this case, they had even managed to change the rules to match their inner lust and their inner desire. So now they believe they're keeping the rules to avoid punishment, but their hearts are far from him. But the bigger dog is going to win in the fallen heart. Eventually, the shame isn't sufficient to contain it. The consequence isn't sufficient to contain it. Or even better yet, culture and religion move toward your lust and they legitimize it. 
Exactly what we see in our text. Exactly what we had in post-exilic Israel. Exactly what we have in the Pharisees. Dare I say, exactly what we have today. Anyone who has ever called the Bible irrelevant for today, I assure you, has never read it with a desire to see. So this was where we left off last week. Looking essentially at the end of the Old Testament. This is how it ends. God saying, stop divorcing your Jewish wives and taking pagan Gentile ones. I hate that. You're profaning my temple to feed your own lusts and desires. So that is the state of marriage and divorce in the land of Israel as we commence 400 years of silence until Jesus' earthly ministry. Of course, nothing had improved at this point. In fact, it had only gotten worse. Sin never gets better. It always gets worse. Sin carries momentum. It metastasizes. It builds. And so it has in Jesus' day. Divorce is everywhere. With the Pharisees leading the way and the people closely in tow. Remember, we spoke about the very liberal view of divorce that was propagated by Rabbi Hillel. And we mentioned him last week, who taught that divorce was really allowable for any reason as determined by the man. Any reason at all. She burned the meal. Throw her to the curb. That's not hyperbole. That is how women were treated and how marriage was valued. You know, even Josephus, Jewish historian in Jesus' day, he wrote in his memoirs, quote, at this time, I divorced my wife, not liking her behavior, close quote. It was divorced willy-nilly. The school of Hillel even allowed for divorce, quote, if he found another fairer than she. Oh, this one's getting some miles on her. Time to trade it in. Perfectly acceptable. Divorce your wife for burning the meal on Friday. Go to synagogue with the blessing of the priest on Saturday. That was the reality. But hey, I'm following the law. I'm following the law. The second was Rabbi Shammai. His was the conservative view, advocating that divorce essentially was not allowed, but an extreme unseemly conduct, like adultery. So you really had these two views. The liberal popular view, I can do whatever I want as the man for really any reason. And the conservative view that it was really never allowed except for extreme cases. And of course, we saw the Pharisees come to trap Jesus with a question in verse 2. Get Jesus on record not supporting the liberal rabbi on divorce. Not only would the people turn against him, but we know as well that they would have ran right to Herod and Herodias with this declaration, hoping that they would execute the same judgment on Jesus that they did to John the Baptist for this very crime, that of denouncing Herod's divorce and remarriage. They desired for Jesus to declare his own death sentence with his own words. They thought they had Jesus trapped. Yet what did we see Jesus do in response in verse 3? Does he quote a rabbi? Does he give an apologetic? No. Sola Scriptura. He brings them back to Scripture. Scripture alone. Verse 3. What did Moses command you? Forget what society and culture have to say. Forget what Rabbi PhD so-and-so has to say. What does Scripture say? What does the Scripture command of you? That's really the only question, isn't it? There's so much debate, so much back and forth, never-ending. Yet most things are very clear in the Bible. Remember our big word from a few weeks ago, the perspicuity of Scripture. 
right? Meaning the clarity of Scripture. But the Pharisees were word twisters. They were deceivers. And the people, well, they were more than happy to heap unto themselves teachers who would give them license and who would tell them what their itching ears wanted to hear. Sure, your rabbi tells you, you can divorce her from burning the hummus. I mean, who burns the hummus? How hard is it? Don't worry. Moses has only commanded that you give her a certificate of divorce and be on your way. That's it. Of course, that is not at all what Moses said, was it? Moses never commanded any such thing, referencing Deuteronomy 24. Last week, we demonstrated that Moses was not prescribing what should happen in these situations. Moses is describing what happens in these instances. And thankfully, we looked at the NASB, we looked at the LSB, and they caught that important nuance there. Moses is merely making an observation of what the husband has done. Nowhere in Deuteronomy 24 is divorce being condoned, commended, and certainly not commanded, as the Pharisees said. And we have this confirmed by Jesus' own words. Moses only gave this allowance because of the hardness of your heart. Meaning this is not the way it should be. This is not the way it was designed. Roads are meant to be good things. They're meant to transport you to different places. But people are going to speed on those roads. So we need to regulate this. We need to be able to write certificates of speeding and certificates of reckless driving. If you think about it, our entire justice system is built around this very same concept. We have formal ways of addressing various crimes and sin. Does the fact that the state has a way of addressing a crime mean that they're endorsing the crime? Of course not. That sounds absurd to our ears. Yet that is exactly what the Pharisees have done. Because there was a system in place by which Moses would deal with hard-hearted sin and the results of it, that must mean it's okay for us to do. Well, it's absurd. But the sinful heart is absurd. It's deceived, and it wants what it wants. And if I can get religious cover to do it, what a nice bonus. What a very nice bonus. Moses gave this allowance because of your sclerocardia, our sclerosis of heart, a hard heart, a stubborn attitude toward changing one's behavior, an insensitivity, an unyielding frame of mind, obstinacy, perverseness, coldness, stubbornness, all fall into this range. This is not the way it should be. This is not the way it was designed to be. But it's going to happen, so here's the legal framework to deal with it. Today, Jesus is going to recenter the argument. This big ship needs a massive course correction, and a big ship needs a big rudder. What is the biggest rudder we can find to address the issue of divorce? What's the most consequential act up to this point that was made to point to and shine a light upon the very act of marriage? We have to go back to the beginning. We have to go back to creation. You've got a rabbi. We've got Genesis. And so Jesus does. Let's dig into our text here, beginning with verse 6. Beginning with verse 6. Jesus quoting here Genesis 2. But from the beginning. Now pause there. There's lots to see. We mustn't skip over such a simple word as but. 
This is a refutation. This is contrast. That's the hinge on which the whole argument turns. You have your definition of marriage, contrast, but here's mine. Your culture can say whatever it says. The Supreme Court can say whatever they say. You don't change the foundation or the definition of marriage, nor the severity of the divorce that breaks it, because it's not your creation to begin with. You don't get to redefine what's not yours. Marriage is God's. Only he gets to set the parameters. Look at our text. But, but what? But from the beginning of creation... Meaning, raise your view, lift your gaze. This is bigger than any rabbi. And what you have called plain in marriage, what you have called common in your wife, what you have defiled in your bed, from the beginning of creation, God. Here's your authority, Pharisees. Here's mine. Here's mine. God's really repeating what we read this morning in Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I appeal to the very foundation of the world, to creation itself, by the very act of the creator himself. God had a plan and a purpose. God made them male and female. Consequently, yes, there are only two genders, male and female. And no, there is not a difference between gender and sex. I had to laugh this week at a t-shirt that was for sale on Amazon. It said in bright rainbow letters, there are more than two genders. And it hauled all the different gender symbols that they have made on the t-shirt. But what was really funny was right below it, if you wanted to purchase the t-shirt, it asked if you wanted the t-shirt in male or female. It's what Romans 1 means when it talks about a debased mind. Not only does it mean a wicked mind, but it means more accurately the inability to think. No logic, no reason. That's the third wave of judgment in Romans 1 against a nation that's being given over by God. Within my lifetime, that may be a jailable offense to say, and already is in some countries. I'm sorry the author has spoken. It's out of my hands. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. That is not subject to change. No matter how debased or reprobate our thinking may become as a society, I did not write it, but I am charged with proclaiming it in all boldness, humility, and love. Jesus is answering this question of divorce by going all the way back to the beginning, back to creation. Back to the created order. God did not create a spare Eve in the event things went sideways. In for a penny, in for a pound was God's plan. We see a divine purpose, divine planning, a covenantal union that would be so sacrosanct that in the Old Testament, the penalty for breaking those bonds through adultery was death. Even premarital sex in Leviticus, an act that would pre-contaminate the marriage bed, the penalty was scourging. Looking even to the last of the Ten Commandments, do not covet, yes, but what is the example God gives? Do not covet your neighbor's wife. This is serious business, covenant business. 
As we said last week, marriage is an institute marriage as an institution is not a matter of culture. It is a matter of creation. Marriage is not a matter of culture. It is a matter of creation. Jesus expands on Genesis 2. Look to verse 7, Mark 10, verse 7. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. So here we see a leaving that is to occur. But it's not a leaving of a husband from a wife. The only leaving we see is to be from the parents. And we cannot miss this. Often marriages are doomed from the start because the parties don't leave and cleave. They still cleave and they wind up leaving. Parents are wonderful, but they are to be independent. Grandma and grandpa are not who you run to first for advice and comfort. The primary roles of guidance and love and comfort and provision previously given by the parent are now transferred to your spouse. How many marriages suffer strain because of a failure to leave and cleave? Godly parents of married children should be encouraging their children's independence and a cleaving to one another. If they are struggling with something, have they gone to their spouse already? Especially young couples, some struggle with that changing dynamic of relationship. But you are commanded in Genesis 2 to grow up and be independent. It's not mom and dad anymore, it's your spouse. And that means we are not comparing our spouses, good or bad, to our parents. We love them, honor them, serve them, but they do not fill the role of our spouse. A failure to leave the parents upon marriage has been the dynamite that has destroyed many a marriage. We have to follow God's plan, His roadmap, or it doesn't work. For this reason, for this reason, back to our text, for what reason? Verse 8, he tells us, And the two shall become one flesh, and they are no longer two, but one flesh. Well, truly, we could camp right here for a good long while. There is such rich truth here. But a few things we must see. Two becoming one flesh. The first part, Jesus is quoting Genesis 2.24. Direct quotation. And the two shall become one flesh. This is an intimacy of coming together. Yes, in a, in a sexual sense, but even more than that. You know, in homeschooling, we, we tend to do a lot of crafts at home. We love doing those. And one of the crafts are, are those, those paper cutouts of people. And you hang them on a string. You ever done those? But to make the people, we, we, we cut out one person, but we don't want the other side to be a blank piece of paper. So we cut out another person on the other side that matches. And we take those two people... And we glue them together. Head perfectly matched to head. Arms lined up. Legs lined up. At least as best we can. Right? Turn them back and forth. They're indistinguishable from one another. And we take our glue and we seal those two together. And that glue sets. These two people are one. Now what if one of our kids decided they found a better girl for one side or a better boy for the other? I mean, this cutout is so much better. I want this one. We say, don't do that. You'll ruin your project. These were not designed to be pulled apart. That glue is set hard. But that person they found 
to cut out just looks so much better than the one they had. So they don't listen to wisdom. They don't listen to mom and dad. They don't listen to directions or the instructions. And they try to pull these two people apart. Are the results predictable? Utterly predictable. Both sides wind up completely torn. Completely torn. And you never really get the pieces off of one from the other. Well, here in our text, Jesus adds, he really repeats Genesis 2. But also, almost in a clarifying way, almost repeated in a way to, to remove any doubt. Last part of verse 8. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. It's not a matter of choice at this point. You are no longer two. You are one flesh. The paper people are glued together. And beloved, this design does not merely apply to believers. The truths of Genesis 2 about how God created the world, how he created male and female, how he created them to be in covenant union with one another, all peoples are made this way. When two unbelievers, one man and one woman, are united in marriage, is it the two kinds of people that make the marriage holy, or is it the God-made institution that makes it set apart and holy? Unbelievers partake in the God-ordained institution of marriage all the time. And the effects on their life from a divorce are the same effects as with a believer. They're devastating. They're devastating. Rip apart a believer or an unbeliever. They're both still ripped. Marriage is God's. It's baked into the design. If you are male or female, you are of that design. And you're subject to the laws of it as much as we'd be subject to the laws of gravity. Two unbelievers brought together in holy matrimony have still become one flesh. God's principles in the very created order are not set aside because they are unbelievers. And not to compare marriage to prison, but it's a lot like the criminal that is sentenced to jail by a judge. And he says, I don't recognize the authority of this court or you, judge. Okay, fine. You're still in jail. You're still in jail. Your reality is what the judge says it is. And indeed, to take it even further, every unbeliever is subject to every law and principle of God in every way, even though they shake their fist in the courtroom. The only question is whether or not they will bend the knee on this side of eternity or on the next. Because we know that every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Because of that, God has made them make male and female. Because the two shall become one flesh, as decreed by God, as demonstrated in the very created order. Verse 9. Verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. God himself is the driving force behind the institution of marriage. If you are in the covenant of marriage, God is for your marriage. This concept of being joined together, Suzunumi, wants the reader to envision two draft animals joined together. 
They're yoked together. They facilitate their working as a team or in unison. This word speaks of one who, who pulls well in a double harness. And both parties are pulling. Beloved, if you are in a marriage, you are pulling. You are yoked together. God himself has joined it together. But you're either pulling together or you're pulling apart. You may say, I'm not pulling away. I've just given up. No, that's still pulling. Suzunumi, you are joined as oxen. You are hooked together. There is no standing still. We move together with one another or we pull apart. Giving up or doing nothing is not possible. There is no door number three. Suzunumi, we're pulling together or we're pulling apart. Yet we are commanded to not pull against one another, to not cause separation from one another, because God himself has joined us together. Well, what if we were both lost when we got married? What if we were living in sin when we got married? Has God still joined us together? Yes, he has. Yes, he has. It is the institution that is his, not the purity of the ones partaking of it that make it valuable and sacred. Now, that's not an excuse for sin, nor does that mean that God has not decreed what gender makeup may partake of that institution. He has, clearly and repeatedly, one man and one woman. However, God knew what you would do. God knew who you were when we came to the covenant of marriage. And while we may not have acknowledged the authority of the judge when we walked into his sanctuary, it was still his institution, still his sanctuary. And God takes broken things, and he makes something beautiful from it, doesn't he? Oh, pastor, our relationship was fraught with sin when we got married. I was pregnant out of wedlock. Daddy had a shotgun. You have no idea. You didn't make the institution of marriage holy. God did. God did. When you come to Christ, the institution of marriage didn't change. We are the ones changed. We are now brought in line with God's precept and God's will for that covenant marriage. God redeems it. He makes it whole. God's decree of marriage from the foundation of the world was always perfect, regardless of our rejection of it. Our sin didn't change the properties of marriage. And that is good news, is it not? That's good news. If we be in Christ, we don't carry any stains going forward. In fact, many of us can look at our families now, whether it be stepchildren brought forward or, or new life given in the family, and see the incredible redeeming power of God from something that may have been birthed in sin. That's God's specialty, making all things new. The most wicked act in history, the execution of the most innocent man, God used to bring about the most beautiful gift, our very salvation. There is nothing that cannot be redeemed. And if you have been forgiven much, then love much. Divorce was given an allowance for our hard hearts, but we have been given new hearts in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are not dependent on society or culture to stand upon, that we are moored to a firm foundation and not just scripture, but the scripture that points to the very beginning, 
to Genesis itself. We do thank you that you've created us male and female and all the beautiful intricacies of that. We thank you for the gift of marriage. We thank you, Lord, that just as in salvation, which is a perfect gift, Lord, the institution of marriage being so perfect and given to us, Lord, that you have allowed us to approach that institution. Lord, with all of our faults and all of our weaknesses and all of our sin, Heavenly Father, that you have redeemed us from the pit. And Lord, for many of us have redeemed our lives and our marriages from the pit. Lord, we ask that you would allow this word to settle in our heart as, as sediment would when shook up in a jar. Lord, we know these are difficult topics. And we thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this. We pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.